This Thursday, we will pause to celebrate Thanksgiving. And I know that there is one thing that too often we are not as thankful for as we should be. And I think it's simply because we don't stop to think about it. But the reality of the situation is that persecution is inevitable. I don't know if you realize it, but 75% of all documented persecution right now is religiously motivated and religiously motivated against Christians. For instance, vandalism. As recent as October the 22nd, 2019, an article appeared indicating that the fifth church in four months had been vandalized in Louisiana. November the 17th, an anti-Semitic group, or a group put anti-Semitic graffiti all over the walls of a church in Augusta, Georgia. On May the 3rd of 2019, the BBC News issued an article that said the persecution of Christians in parts of the world is at near genocide levels. That article in May was prompted by the fact that this past Easter, more than 250 people were killed and over 500 were injured just in Sri Lanka on Easter Sunday. The group called Pew Research Center has done a study. They did it first in the year 2014. And at that time, there was persecution against Christians in 108 countries in the world. When they repeated that study in 2017, it had increased to 143 countries where persecution is taking place. Now last Sunday, we looked at a sermon that I titled, Prepare to Defend. But as you'll recall, I was not talking about physical self-defense. In fact, Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.8 that we're not to repay evil with evil. We are not to repay reviling for reviling. Instead, he says we are called to bless others. And we looked at Jesus, His sermon on the mount, where He said, pray for those who persecute you. And we closed last Sunday with verse 18 of chapter 3. A verse that said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Our primary example that we have of how we should face suffering ourselves. But yet don't forget, I also shared with you the example of young 14-year-old Noman Masi, who on April the 15th of 2015 died from 
wounds from being doused with kerosene and burned because he admitted that he in fact was a Christian. But the beauty of his example was even though he was only a 14-year-old boy, in his dying words were the words, forgive them, forgive them. Now, before we go to our text this morning, there's an important principle of interpretation that I want to stress to you once again, and then a new one. When I look at a passage in the Bible, especially when I examine it in the original Greek or Hebrew text, the first principle that I hold myself to from the teaching of my mentor, Dr. Robert Lowry, the first principle that I hold myself to is the principle of humility. When I look at God's Word, I have to begin by realizing that I'm human. I'm not perfect. And I might not be looking at it from all of the necessary angles. And I pray that as I do that, and as I examine Scripture in community, that as we do that, we will come to the proper understanding of God's Word. But you know what? I've shared this with you before. I know that when I die and we have that time of reunion that we refer to as our heavenly experience, one of the writers of the Bible is going to come and say, Hey, Chauncey, come here. Let's go for a walk. Do you know when you told everybody that I meant this? That's not really what I meant. I know that's going to happen because I'm human. I'm not perfect. But the second principle I think that is important for us to see and understand is that we need to understand when we're reading God's Word that the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Now, I didn't create that. That comes from Alistair Begg. But so often, a lot of people get hung up arguing and debating, even though Paul in several points in the Scripture says, don't debate, don't get hung up on arguments about words. They just cause divisions. But we get hung up on a little verse taken out of context instead of looking at the big picture. And in our text for today, we have a couple verses that are just like that. In fact, one writer said that our text for today is one of the most difficult sections in the New Testament to understand. So here's how I want to approach our text for today. I want to approach it from the idea of dying with Christ. Dying with Christ. So let's go to our text. It comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. <clears throat> for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, 
Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which, excuse me, in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appealing God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. May God add his blessing to our reading of his word. Now the difficult section, I'm going to deal with it first. It's at verse 19 and 20. Made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. I have to say to you, very honestly, I do not know exactly where to land on understanding what that means. Now there are three classical ways in which that passage has been understood. The first is that Jesus descended into hell and preached to the spirits. The spirits of those who perished in the flood in the time of Noah. That's probably the one that many of us have grown up hearing in regard to this passage. But here's the problem. Peter doesn't say he descended. If you read it carefully. Not only that, Peter doesn't even mention hell. Those are interpretive ways we have translated that passage. And there are other reasons that I'll get to, but some of the phrases Peter used are never used in reference to the eternal punishment in hell. So that brings me to the second one. And the second way it's been interpreted was that the preaching that was done was actually done in the Spirit through Noah. And for support of that, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, at that point Peter said, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time, listen, the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the idea there is is that what Peter is referring to is how the Old Testament prophets in the Spirit of Christ were proclaiming that message. I'm still not satisfied with that though. The third one which I come the closest to accepting and landing on is the idea that when he's talking about the spirits in prison... It's much the same as in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, when he talks about the fallen angels, rather than talking about human beings at all. And instead of a proclamation that is evangelistic in nature, what it is, is Peter is saying, when he was resurrected, Christ went and proclaimed the victory that was done over death and over sin.
That's the one that is easiest for me to hold in the light of the rest of the Scriptures. But all of that aside, what we can say about our text that's before us today is that when we look at the context, the context is still about persecution. And Peter's instructions deal with the suffering, the death of Christ. And Christ's death, he says, was to bring us to God. So that when we are having those times in which you and I are persecuted, instead of being driven away, we'll be brought closer to God. And the problem is the problem of separation. The problem of alienation. The fact is, is we're separated from God. Our worldview is self-focused. Martin Luther, the reformer, once wrote that man is turned in on himself. He is self-obsessed. We don't know how to be thankful. We always want more. Rockefeller, at his time, the richest man in the world, was asked, at what point did you become satisfied with the amount of wealth that you had? And you know what he answered? I don't know. I haven't gotten there yet. Christopher Lash, in one of his writings, labeled our culture today as the culture of narcissism. Me, myself, I, always wanting more. Worried about my own wants instead of the wants of others. (coughs) And so our culture is seriously adrift. We don't have an anchor. There is no one spot anymore where people can say, well, I find meaning here. And sadly, in many cases, people are not even finding any meaning in their church experience. All they're finding is another place that is kind of a a club where people get together and kind of do good things. We've distorted God's original design. An article called Alienation from God came out July the 14th of this year written by somebody that I admire very much. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. Here's what he writes. It's about us. Contemporary men and women find it almost impossible to conceive that they were made to glorify and to enjoy God. That's why we're even made. to glorify and to enjoy God. He goes on to say it would perhaps be more accurate to say that the very idea of living for God, the God of glory, living for the glory of God appears to be many people's idea of hell. We might rework the famous words in John Paul Sartre's play No Exit where Sartre said hell is other people. To many... Hell is the presence of God. 
But to live for ourselves, that is heaven. Listen to me. Therapy that fails to deal with the real issue is doomed to fail. The problem in our society today is not ultimately economic. It's not ultimately biological. It's not even ultimately chemical. Man's deepest problem is sin. Our alienation from God. Our separation. Our unwillingness to glorify God by living obedient lives of service. And the only solution to the problem of alienation is reconciliation. Many people, I think today, live like the rich fool of Jesus' parable. Remember the one where he had a really good harvest and he was really thrilled about his really good harvest and he said, I'm going to build more barns? What did Jesus say to him? Fool. This day, this day, your soul will be required of you. Psalm chapter 14, verse 1. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That passage does not mean that he is an atheist. When you look at the Hebrew wording of that passage, what that passage means is, there is no God who is going to have control over my life. I'm not going to let that happen. And instead of finding lasting pleasure in God's world, we only find increased alienation. And alienation from God is not only real, but it's dangerous. And the depth of the alienation is evidenced by the fact that we think there's no danger at all. And yet the sobering truth is found in what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, and I quote, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. But here's the good news. Peter says, verse 18, Christ has suffered for us. Once and for all, Christ died for us. So let's go back and take a second look and see how Paul deals with this as he goes on. He says, all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So church, what is our job? Our job is not to just come here on Sunday mornings, spend an hour or so, looking at the Bible, having communion, praying... Our job is to be leaving here on Sundays and going back to our jobs and trying to help people who are alienated from God, who are separated from God, come into a loving relationship with Him. That's not just my job. 
That's your job also. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So when we appear before the judgment seat, Jesus says, well done, enter into your rest, your reward. Why? Because we believe the right things in our head? No! If I have to preach that every Sunday until the day I die, it's going to come up somewhere in my sermons. Because too many people today think that they've got everything okay and they're going to heaven just because they believe the right things in their heads. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the wise man was the one who did what? He heard and he acted upon what he heard. The foolish man heard the message But he didn't act upon it. Our sins have been forgiven because of what Christ does if we have accepted Him as our Lord and Savior. But how do we procure that? How do we obtain it? That's what takes Peter back from where he was talking about Christ and His proclamation and and Noah and the floodwaters, mentally that's what takes Him back to baptism. When He mentions the ark and the people being saved from the flood by the water, He writes, that is, eight persons were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Can't get any plainer than that. If you have not been baptized, you are in jeopardy of not being saved. Is it essential? It's hard for me to say it's not when Peter says, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. Baptism doesn't save you by doing something magical, by dunking in the water. No. I have known a lot of people who went into the baptistry, dry sinners, who came out of the baptistry, wet sinners. Because they didn't get baptized for the right reason. But what Peter's saying, what Paul is saying, is if you want to be reconciled to God, repent, confess, be baptized. You see, that's how you and I are able to demonstrate, to show, to provide witness to the fact that we are in fact dying with Christ. It's a burial. That's why they use the Greek word baptizo. That means immersed. I've shared this before. First century recipe for making pickles. Baptizo. You can't make pickles out of cucumbers by sprinkling them and pouring them. I don't care if you do it all day long. You only make cucumbers into pickles by submersion by getting them under the solution and keeping them longer than I will keep you if I ever baptize you. 
Paul wrote to the Christians at Rome in Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin, listen, how can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death? We were buried with Him, therefore, by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, when we are baptized, when, and it begins first of all by hearing the Word, obviously, and believing the Word, and then coming and repenting, telling people we're going to change our lives, not saying we're sorry, repenting. I get tired of hearing some people say I'm sorry. Don't you? I don't know how many times I've said to one of my kids, don't tell me you're sorry again, just change. The Bible isn't talking about saying I'm sorry. Do you know that Peter, I mean Judas said he was sorry? Do you know that? But it doesn't use the word metanoia. He didn't repent. He didn't change his mind. We've got to repent. But then we've also got to indicate what we're doing by symbolically joining in dying with Christ and being raised to walk in newness of life. We cannot expect to be raised with Christ if we have not been buried with Him. We've got to kill the old self. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Which leads us to the effect in Peter's words, because Jesus was willing to suffer and to die for us, the righteous for the unrighteous, He was exalted. He was resurrected. He's gone into heaven, Peter says, at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. And that's the bottom line. <coughs> I mean, the conclusion can be nothing other than if you and I want to be saved, we need to do what the Bible says. If we want to be resurrected, we've got to die with Christ. And through not the power of magic water, but through the power of the resurrection, we too can be raised with Him and given a new, glorified, exalted body. You see, in Christ, we've been given new life. And you know when that new life begins? Not when we die. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. If you are only physically born, but you have never been buried and raised and started life over 
as a newborn, then you have not only physical death to face, but you have eternal death ahead of you also. But if you have been born twice, born physically and then reborn by letting the old self die and rising as a new person, that's when your eternal life begins. Death does not scare me because I'm already dead. I have died with Christ. They can take this physical life. I shouldn't say things like this. But sometimes I just can't help it. My wife, yesterday, in a very loving way, was reminding me that I had probably eaten too much chocolate. Now, I defended myself by showing her a post that somebody put on Facebook saying that chocolate works better for coughing than a lot of medicines. She said, yeah, but that doesn't help with your diabetes. And I said, which I shouldn't have, but you know what? This is where I live. then I would be with Jesus. I would be with Jesus. Not plagued with the problems of this world anymore. Hampered by the physical problems. Depressed by what I see other people doing. Destroying one another. But being with those who I love who have already gone before who lived obedient, faithful lives. My new life has begun. Life more abundant. I mean, I could go on verse after verse after verse. But where does it start? When we realize, unfortunately, suffering is inevitable, But when you and I can experience that suffering, as Peter said, by being able to show ourselves still to be hopeful and to be able to give other people a reason for the hope that we have within us when we are suffering, then they too might be able to be reunited, reconciled with God. Let's pray.